0: Do you have a hard time understanding Pope Francis and what he's up to? Are you wondering what he's trying to accomplish? What if I told you that a secret group of leftist cardinals conspired to elect Pope Francis, contravening rules for papal elections? Well, some of you may have already heard of the saint Gallen Mafia, but we have with us an amazing journalist, one of the best researchers I know, who has done a deep dive into the inner workings of this saint Gallen Mafia, and what is most startling, is how their stated agenda falls totally in line with the Francis papacy. And it's, in fact, the best way to make sense of the Francis papacy. This is the John Henry Weston Show. You're going to want to stay tuned. Before we begin, please consider becoming a sustaining donor to LifeSite News in order to sustain our mission month in and month out. As a sustainer, you'll gain exclusive perks such as behind-the-scenes sneak peeks of our news in production, personal contact with our team, and the ability to send some questions in for me to answer on my Friday show, the Sustainer segment of the John Henry Weston Show, where I will answer questions and You can sign up today to become a monthly sustainer by visiting give.lifesitenews.com slash sustainlife. And if you're already a current sustainer, thank you. And don't forget to submit any questions you may have. I look forward to answering them. Julia Maloney, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Julia, you're very familiar to me because I think you're honestly one of the best researchers that I know. You have a graduate degree from Yale University and then, uh, excuse me, uh, undergrad from Yale and then a master's from Harvard uh, in English. Your research and writing has been impeccable. Uh, when you were doing this book, I was uh, eagerly awaiting its uh, its publication. So we're there now. And uh, if you wouldn't mind... Let's start with a very basic question for you. But what is the Sangallian Mafia, or who is the Sangallan Mafia?
1: So it's a group of high-ranking churchmen, and um, they started meeting at or near St. Gallen, Switzerland, in the mid 1990s. 1996 is usually the date we're given for when they officially start. And if the figurehead, the dominant personality of the group, is Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini. And um, he had been a Jesuit biblical scholar, and then he became the Archbishop of Milan. And in the 1990s, he was kind of seen as um, the next Pope. The At least the world wanted him to be the next Pope after Pope John Paul II. And um, he gave some prominent interviews where he kind of signaled that he... He, he was a little flexible, let's say, on things like contraception and women priests and that sort of thing, kind of just hinting, having a, a kind of ambiguity that's very suggestive. You could even call it Jesuitical, you know, the, the way that he would answer questions. So it's right around the same time that he's being, um, that talk of him as being bandied about as the next pope, that he founds this group called the St. Gallen Mafia. And um, the, the, the then Bishop of um, that area in Switzerland, um, Ivo Fuhrer was, was the person who would host these meetings. And um, some of the other dominant personalities would be Cardinal Walter Kasper, And he's very familiar to us. He's the German theologian who, of course, had the Casper proposal for communion for the divorced and simply remarried. Um, he was he was there uh, cardinal um, he wasn't a cardinal then but um, Carl Lehmann another German um, another he, he was actually um, an assistant at one time to Carl Rahner the uh, one of the dominant towering figures of the Second Vatican Council um, so a lot of these people they were they were kind of like the next They were like the heirs to the Vatican II big personalities. And um, there were other figures that came in. Um, Cardinal Achilles Silvestrini um, was an important one. And he was an Italian diplomat. And he was very kind of scheming, maneuvering. And he came into the group in, I believe, 2003, because Martini, the man who should have become the next pope, um, he got Parkinson's disease. And so he had to leave the group, but he still was kind of this spiritual presence for the group. So even though he formally left, allegedly in 2003, um, he remains kind of the dominant figure throughout all of this.
0: It's amazing. I, I believe Cardinal McCarrick was there as well. Is that correct?
1: McCarrick is usually not named as a technical member of the group. But um, people have been covered, especially through interviews with with James Grine, um, who he's kind of the most famous victim of, of McCarrick. James Grine has talked about how McCarrick spent time in Switzerland, um, I think in the 1950s. And um, according to Mr. Grine, McCarrick went to St. Gallen, Switzerland like every year for like 20 years or, or something like that. So there's, there's a very, um, we get to the point where um, some of this gets very fuzzy and nebulous and it's in the shadows still. And there, there's still frankly, for further research that needs to be done to clarify what his role was.
0: One of the most fascinating things, and this is where I think people really start to get the connection for most people. Figuring out Pope Francis has been one of the most difficult things. Uh, I think almost the whole world was at first, oh, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, no real concerns, a few notable exceptions. But, you know, for me, anyways, it was like three days in. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but three days in, he first praises Cardinal Casper, uh, the, the theology of the on the knees comment. And that's when all the red flags went off, at least for us at Life was like, whoa, wait a minute. Cardinal Casper was that same guy who fought Pope Benedict all those years ago uh, while he was still Ratzinger in the CDF over the issue of communion for the divorce and remarried. But that didn't figure in right away on day three of the papacy. It was more like, oh, here's the theologian who's doing such great theology. And we were like, oh, that's kind of kind of strange. Lay out for us, was, if you will, Cardinal Casper and, um, and his connection here to Pope Francis.
1: We know from interviews that Casper has has done and you know this is documented in the book there's there's like over 600 footnotes so there's quite a lot of documentation here if if people you know want to look any of this up but we know from interviews that Casper um met Bergoglio when when he was a, a cardinal I believe in Argentina and he actually went back several times and and had visits with Bergoglio so, so they have this connection, but this really interesting narrative comes up, which kind of ignores that mysterious prior connection that they had, and um, basically talks about the famous story that, like, oh, in the con, you know, um, around the time of the 2013 conclave, Casper had just gotten the Spanish translation, Spanish edition of his book Mercy and so he was he went to Bergoglio, Bergoglio happened to be like the room across from him and so he went to Bergoglio and, and shared it with him and then allegedly that was kind of like how he got on on Bergoglio's radar so this becomes this kind of legend there and then that it becomes this explanatory event to to account for why Pope Francis is praising him three days in but again as I said there appears to have been a prior history of visits. And we know that the, the mafia was talking about Bergoglio in, in 2001, um, because Bergoglio had been the, um, one of the synodal officials for the October Synod that they had on collegiality. And he, he especially impressed Cardinal Godfrey Daniels, who's, who's another um, important personality. In this group. So that's kind of a little bit about that.
0: It's a very interesting history because what you note about him going to visit Bergoglio, so Casper and Bergoglio are visiting in Argentina. And nevertheless, we have this then story as if, you know, it comes the whole idea and notion of uh, the, the, you know, divorce, remarriage, communion comes from this beautiful exchange. Pope Francis reads uh, Cardinal Casper's work and, and just is so inspired, gets him to lead off the discussion about that issue of divorce, remarriage, communion, which then leads to the first extraordinary sit on the family, second sit on the family Morris Letizia, where, of course, the whole of the church teaching gets turned upside down by Pope Francis, led in a way by Cardinal Casper. But interestingly, they had this connection before. So is this a setup? A setup isn't all that weird, because setups are known to happen with Pope Francis. There's a famous story of, uh, you know, Pope Francis uh, taking the bus, uh, you know, uh, of things, but that was a photo op. He gets dropped off when in Argentina, still as cardinal, he gets dropped off a couple of blocks before uh, the rectory, so he can be shown to walk there. There's another famous story of him, um, you know, one of his aides having taken his uh, suitcase, his bag, the Pope's bag, up onto the plane already. And he scolds him and says, no, 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 I wanted to carry it in myself. So there are setups. Uh, there are setups big time. We know from uh, when he was in the cafeteria with the cafeteria workers, the Pope went down to meet them. It was all staged. All the cafeteria workers were told they're not allowed to talk to him unless, of course, they're tapped and then they're supposed to be the ones to talk to him. So there's a lot of setup, unfortunately, that has gone on in the Vatican in recent days. But let's deal with this Cardinal that you now brought up um, because I think Cardinal Daniels is also a very central figure um, in, in this whole thing. And in fact, I might ask it this way. You're calling them the Sandgallen Mafia. Don't you think that's rather insulting? Why not choose a less pejorative name?
1: We use the name that Daniels gave us. Um, he, he's the one who confessed everything. He's the one who had the need to boast. His biography was coming out, I believe, um, in t- the fall of 2015. And, um, he was on stage, and, he, there, you know, there's video of him where he, he's just smiling about the fact that, you know, oh, we called ourselves the Mafia. Um, so that's where we, you know, definitely where we get the name from. And Daniels is an incredibly important and, and disturbing figure um, because he, for anyone who doesn't know, he had been caught on tape trying to quiet a sexual abuse victim and this victim was a man who had been abused by his own uncle um, who became a bishop a bishop under Daniels and he had been abused from the age of five to 18 and um, he can be heard on the tape saying things like why are you always taking the side of my abuser I, I thought I was coming here to get support from you and you're always taking his side so it's really devastating um, when you actually look at the transcripts. And yet, nevertheless, he begins speaking about how he had a resurrection. That that's that's his imagery, a resurrection under Pope Francis. And he's very important because I think he's where we get the name Francis from. Um, we talked about, you know, you were talking very eloquently about setups. We all know that, you know, the, the story of how Pope Francis got his name is sounds pretty spontaneous and inspired, right? Because Cardinal Humus says, Don't forget the poor, and a light bulb goes goes turns on in Cardinal Bergoglio's mind, um, who's now Pope Francis, and he just des- decides to become Francis. Well, Daniels, of all people you know, I I document this in the book, in the 1990s, he was talking about how we need a new Francis. Multiple times he has an essay about it. And um, he was telling people about it as well. We have documentation of that from the New York Times. And right before the 2013 conclave, um, he gave a press conference and said, we need a Francis. So this is another moment where so many of these moments that appear to be like beautifully spontaneous and 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 quaint in that way um they they appear to be completely scripted the spontaneity is is completely programmed into them
0: yeah what's amazing about this and that hugely close connection there between daniel's and francis is that for all the world and i mean even the secular world Daniel should have been a total scandal. The reason why he needed to be resurrected, as he said, from uh, by Francis was because he was totally shunted by—well, after he was named Cardinal, but nonetheless—shunted by Pope J- JP II in the end of his papacy and also Benedict. Why? Because not only is he on record as having been caught, uh, not only covering up, trying to, as you said, silence a victim about the sexual incestuous— pedophilia of his uncle, who's a bishop under Daniels, but also because in the Catholic world, he was not pro-life at all. In fact, he okayed the King of Belgium to go ahead and legalize abortion. He actually uh, is public about wearing a rainbow stall. This is a scandal to the faith in so many ways, even the secular way, and yet Francis resurrects him in his own words. Let's go on to another one of these figures that I think is is really the central character in the story. Um, and this is where we come up with some of the most, and you lay out some of the most fascinating details that explain Francis, that really, uh, for all those of us who are scratching our heads going, where is he going? What is up with this? I can't understand this, Pope. <laughs> Your book brings a clarity that uh, really is hard to find, and it's because of this connection. To the cardinal you mentioned off the top, Cardinal Martini, Archbishop of Milan. Tell us a little bit more about him and his connection to Pope Francis.
1: He's the center of this book. Um, the, the The book is it has many different chapters, many different personalities. I try to for most of the chapters, I try to pick one person to kind of focus on. And then I lay out an issue and a narrative based on that person. So Martini has several chapters. But at the end of the day, he, he's the catalyst for everything, the center of gravity. And um, M- Martini is interesting because we have testimony from Nicholas um, who talked to a cardinal. And the cardinal indicated that, that Martini in the 2005 conclave, under no circumstances, wanted to support Bergoglio. Um, Silvestrini, who I mentioned earlier, was kind of spearheading the movement for Bergoglio um, to be backed by the mafia, but but Martini was unpersuadable. He would not support Bergoglio. And then something happened, because if you look at the late Martini, Eugenio Scalfari indicates that when Martini was, you know, getting close to his deathbed in the last couple months, he was talking about the positions that he shared with Bergoglio. And then um, you also have, we have at least one of his works. uh, Again, I cite it in the book, but um, where, where Martini is quoting Bergoglio in his works. Bergoglio loved to quote Martini, Um, We know that from Austin Ivory, um, who's the the papal biographer of Francis, but this was the time Martini was quoting Bergoglio. So they have this this interesting dynamic, and then um, basically what the book tries to lay out is is the case that we have the ghost of Cardinal Martini after he dies, and that phrase ghost of Cardinal Martini is a very eloquent phrase that... um, the Vaticanista Edward Penton um, talks about in one of his pieces. And um, I think for me, if, if I can just focus on, on one particular instance here, we've seen Pope Francis go to Eugenio Scalfari, the atheist for, for a lot of interviews, right? Now, there are multiple interviews that Martini gave with to Scalfari. And um, one of the interviews, talked about um the pope being the bishop of rome and it also talked about having councils and they would be serial and one of them would be the first one the most important one to have would be on the divorced and then the second or third most important one would be on priestly celibacy if this is ringing a bell
0: Oh yeah, it should be. You have Francis who refers to himself over and over again as the Bishop of Rome. We have this now ongoing synods over and over and over again. And we had the very first uh, you know, very first one, extraordinary first, on the issue of the family, which was really all about from its beginning, divorced, remarried, communion and spearheaded by Casper. Continue.
1: We have the the Amazon Synod that, you know, was supposed to make headway on the ordination of married men. So that that's, again, coming from Martini. And the, the interesting thing is when Pope Francis gave that kind of bombshell October 2013 interview with Scalfari, one of the first things that he says in that interview is um, they're talking about, they're kind of joking like, Scalfari is saying, oh, my friends say you want to convert me. And then um, Pope Francis assures him he doesn't want to convert him. And then he says proselytism is solemn nonsense, according to the interview, of course. Um, In in the Scalfari Martini interview from, I believe, somewhere around 2009, this one that was talking about a council for the divorced, a very similar thing happens at the beginning where Martini says, don't worry, I'm not going to proselytize you. So it's like very a very tight connection um, between the two, I think.
0: It's amazing, you know, the layout of your book showing basically the plans of the Sangalan Mafia, particularly of Martini, but also even his, his mentor, layout, and it's even called A, a Hundred Days uh, of the First Pope, but the the absolute lockstep fashion in which this seems to be rolled out uh, is incredible. One one of the things, for instance, uh, that struck me was the the issue of the red shoes. Everybody remembers Francis got rid of the red shoes, but where was that in discussion uh, by the Sangalang Mafia?
1: We have somewhere where Casper was was joking about the red shoes, and then we have um, I found some testimony where his Martini's sister was talking about how Martini you know, as early as like the early 1980s, you know, he didn't like the Red Sox. And I mean, this, this fixation seems, it seems kind of silly, right? The, the different, um, talking about different items of clothing and everything. But to, to these men, it was symbolic of a, a monarchical princely church versus a down-to-earth um, so-called humble church. And um, the book tries to kind of lay out how we can, we can look at things like the choices about the shoes and everything and see a symbolism and see how that eventually gets us to um, the, the type of person who, who wants to do that is the same type of person who might wave a white flag of surrender in, to, the, to the dictatorship of relativism, as, as Benedict called it.
0: I think one of the most striking things about Pope Francis was one of, in, in one of the very first interviews the world was introduced to him, and it was so revolutionary. His comment about homosexuality uh, and same-sex civil relationships is saying, who am I to judge? And if that's, that's, that's basically emblematic of Pope Francis, not only on the issue of homosexuality, but it's sort of like on everything uh, immoral. But even that has its um, origin not in Pope Francis but in Martini. If you wouldn't mind explaining,
1: this is something that the the Italian author that um, Antonio Sochi uh, really registers and and wrote wrote about. Um, basically, there's this eerie echo that you can hear when you take "Who am I to judge," and then you take something that Martini said which is I would never think of judging um, a same-sex couple um, I'm loosely paraphrasing it but it, the idea um, I, I I would never think to judge that is there and Sochi heard the connection and he actually he has a book where um, I forget which one of the books it is but um, where he he takes a bunch of statements from Pope Francis and just puts them side by side with statements from Martini and he basically says you know Francis seems to be using Martini's book night, night conversations as a kind of canvas um and and again i i mentioned before but we we know from Austin Ivory, the papal biographer, and he was actually the spokesperson for Murf, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who's another mafia member. But um, we know from him that, that that Bergoglio loved to quote Martini. So um, sometimes he'll quote even as pope now sometimes he will quote martini explicitly and he did that i think in december i want to say 2021 if it it wasn't 2021 it was 2020 but he he quotes martini's last speech where martini was saying like you know the church is 200 years behind why won't the church rouse itself so he explicitly talks about, says that this is from Cardinal Martini, but then he has these other moments where he says things like, um, "We we need to listen to um, the the." the The God of surprises, the surprises of the Holy Spirit, that sort of thing. Martini is on record talking about the surprises of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's very, it's very pervasive, definitely.
0: I want to conclude with this, encourage people really to go out and get your book, uh, Sangala Mafia, uh, um, available from TAN Books and Publishers, uh, really faithful publishing house. Uh, Congratulations on the work, by the way, just amazing. But Tell us, because this gives us sort of um, an indication of where Francis is coming from, one of the big questions we're left with is, where are we heading to? So from your research into the sangallan Mafia, where is this going? What's the end goal here?
1: When I finished editing the book, it was the summer. It was, I think, beginning of July. And just like maybe two weeks later um, was when traditionis Custodas came out. And it's obviously, you know, this, this kind of attack on the the traditional Latin mass has obviously, um, you know, it appears to be a, a devastating one. I think Peter Kwasniewski compared it to a kind of like a, a, an atomic bomb, basically. And um, I was, you know, even as someone who has studied the, the mafia for this book, you know, I, I was surprised by what a... What a bombshell um, you know, that this development was. And I, I wrote kind of an article that I kind of view as kind of an afterword um, or a companion to the book because it just talks about how the, the mafia also had a a kind of war against the traditional Latin Mass and Pope Benedict's sumorum pontificum, um, which which um, tried to make it more wild, widely available. Um, So I think this is, you know, one of the major battlegrounds that um, is, you know, even it's even worse than I than I could have anticipated and predicted. And then we have the synod on synodality, this kind of two year process. And that that just screams Martini because Martini um, had this 1999 dream speech where he he basically laid out the groundwork for a series of synods. Um, so this was before the Scalfari interview that talked about the council on the divorce and it used code words, but it, you can read into it. And it's basically the same thing we were talking about. It's things like deaconesses and priest, priestly celibacy and that sort of thing. But, um, to, to make, to focus so much on making the church synodal, I, I think it's incredible. It's also incredibly devastating because, um, Edward Penton has a really great article about how some experts are comparing permanent c- synodality, which is Martini's idea, to permanent revolution. So um, to me, what I say to people is these two things, traditionis custodis and the synod on synodality, um, it, it's it's like the mood of an end game. I mean, th- th- these are these are the prizes now. And um, I I yeah, I'm. I'm incredibly worried, and I think we need to just have a lot of um, vigilance about this, uh, and continue to to speak out. We've we've done this before with other synods, and I think we can we can do it again. Just you know, monitoring this situation very, very carefully.
0: Julia, I know you as a very faithful Catholic, uh, someone who's very. Learned and studied, and and you've done a lot of research into this. You've seen the muck of things in a way that few people have. How do you maintain your hope? And uh, what do you see as uh, the real end to all of this?
1: A couple years ago, I think I think you guys, LifeSite, published um, a reflection that Matthew McCusker from I believe Voice of the Family did about. Um, how it's, it's important when you're in the pro-life, pro-family, um, any, any one of these movements, it's very important to um, have something concrete that keeps you hopeful, um, because it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's very spiritually exhausting work to have to, to deal with this all the time. And he talks specifically about Fatima and the First Saturday's Devotion. And um, that, that's something that's really important to me. Um, I, I like to tell people one kind of way to live out the first Saturday's devotion is if you can do it one time, all, f- all five Saturdays, you know, you might try doing it kind of like a perpetual first, first Saturday um, devotion. So I've done that when I can, where I'll just do another five Saturdays. And then if I can, I'll do another five Saturdays. But that's something concrete that I think kind of keeps us, gives us graces to continue on. And in terms of how this ends, um, it ends with, with the, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that's why it's so important. Um, it's important to remember Mar- Martini and the St. Gallen Mafia. They they don't have the la- the last word on any of this, and it's it's up to us to be faithful to our vocations and um, to try to to do as Our Lady has asked and to just have hope that that we will see what she has promised.
0: Amen. Julie Maloney, thank you so much for being with us on this episode of The John Hinner Rustin Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: May God bless you. Thank you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Make sure to go get Julia's book. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com, because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, We are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to LifeSiteNews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of news reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.